Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast, evidence-informed, practical-based. This is Season 2, Episode number 20, and today I'll be chatting with nutritionist Alessandro Ferretti about biomarkers for health and recovery, as well as new research on the effects of keto diets and HIIT training in endurance athletes. In this episode, Alessandro and I will discuss the use of fasted morning glucose as a marker for health, recovery, and longevity. What impacts your fasting glucose marker in terms of health or athletic performance? And of course, when and how to measure, as well as some of the common pitfalls of over-interpretation. Then we'll shift gears and talk about Alessandro's recent contribution to a paper with Dr. Daniel Plews and Prof. Larson on the effects of a ketogenic diet on HIT training performance. Alessandro will outline the study and also the key findings. Most importantly, he'll discuss how to interpret these findings to apply into your practice. Great stuff here from Alessandro. You can link to the research paper discussed here at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as my layups, the simple actionable tips can be found there. If you're interested in more in low-carb strategies for endurance performance, then definitely circle back to season one, episode number 27 on heart rate variability, keto diets, and endurance training with Dr. Daniel Plews and Prof. Paul Larson. And for more specific info on endurance performance in women, check out season one, episode number 38 with Dr. Tamsin Lewis. Okay, before we get started, a quick word from this episode's sponsor, Totem Sport. Totem Sport is the world's only 100% natural supplement. No sugar, no artificial flavors, absolutely nothing added. What is it? Totem Sport is the world's purest deep ocean mineral water. Collected from natural algae blooms in the Atlantic Ocean, Totem Sport is the only sports drink supplement that contains all 78 naturally occurring minerals and trace elements. The research on deep ocean mineral water is ramping up, a recent study highlighting its major promise as the optimal rehydrating strategy over spring water and other sports drinks. Totem Sport is the evolution of hydration, the world's only 100% natural sport drink tested and approved by Informed Sport and Informed Choice. Check out totemsport.co.uk and defy the norm. All right, on to the show, season two, episode number 20. Enjoy. My guest today is Alessandro Ferretti founder of Equilibria Health, recognized as one of the UK's leading providers of nutrition education. His most recent focus is studying the relationships between HRV and blood glucose levels, as well as collaborating with Dr. Justin Roberts, Dr. Daniel Plews, Dr. Paul Larson in three scientific papers in sports performance. Alex, thanks so much for taking the time today, bud. Hey, thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, really. Terrific. Well, before we dive into all this great stuff, can you maybe give us a little background on yourself and how you got interested in this area? Um, for sure. Uh, now, I, I just like to specify that I'm a, just a simple nutritionist um, with a keen interest in researching, but also not just looking at research, but also try to apply it, measure, experiment, and then reevaluate my findings. So <laughs> I think your your intro was uh, very, very kind, way too kind <laughs> for what I think. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if I can classify myself as a leading in the in the UK, yeah. but I, I, I let the others to to you know to, to be the judge of that. But anyhow. Terrific. So uh, 
I was one of these typical guys thinking of doing everything right and ending up ended up with a a, a, a quite elevated fasting glucose. I'm not talking uh, exceeding the lower threshold for diabetes uh, type two, but I was kind of knocking at the door kind of all the time and. Um, Obviously, I was exercising well. Being a nutritionist, my diet was, you know, pretty great uh, at the time. And yet, I that I was with 5.7, 5.8 millimolar of fasting glucose over a period of three months. That will equal in, in, in the 90, in the, well, 100, between 95 and 105 milligrams per deciliter. So, obviously, something had to change. And this is how I got interested in um, low carbohydrate approach, ketogenic, and then I started to study it. Um, and because another area of my research was heart rate variability, I decided to uh, kind of merge the two and see what were the potential correlations. And these were, have been my main two areas of research in, in recent years, in a nutshell. <laughs> Terrific. And... Uh... You know, if we if we look at this from thirty thousand feet for folks listening in, and, and perhaps a nice review for for practitioners and docs is, you know, why is an elevated fasting blood glucose uh, problematic for for long term health? Um, very good point. <laughs> I completely forgot to say that. So um, obviously there are ranges um, that we would classify uh, blood glucose as being normal or elevated. Uh, very rarely slow, but this is another matter. So if we look at research, including meta-analysis, including, for example, the work of Dr. Walsh, um, anything above 4.6 millimolar, which will be your between 82 and 84 milligrams per deciliter, has an association with all-cause mortality. So if we look at that as a parameter, despite people may not go over what is the lowest threshold to be considered type 2 diabetics, yet in that gray area, what we call subclinical levels, um, clearly can be a marker for non-optimal uh, metabolism. And this is what I decided to study uh, because I was one of them. And I'm sure you might be aware that many scientists <laughs> choose their research because it's pertinent to what is perhaps their state of health at that level at that moment in time. Hundred percent. So, <laughs> um, as as it happens, so that I I try to I try to consider uh, blood glucose as a scale with different areas where can be optimal then sub-optimal, and then disease state. And I'm interested in looking at blood glucose in the sub-optimal area and try to maximize uh, environmental changes to bring it to optimal. That is what I'm interested in and what I have been experimenting for the last six, seven years. That's a um, really appropriate topic. I've you know, working clinical practice, so many clients who um, are active, uh, particularly men, as they get into even their 40s, 50s, 60s, start transitioning over to things like cycling, 
Um, and of course, the fueling strategies they're using, they're still carrying oftentimes 10, 15, 20 pounds too much. We see these trends like yourself of blood glucose getting higher, inflammatory markers higher, triglyceride levels higher than what we'd expect. So this idea of, of dialing in the fueling choices, and of course, you know, you're going to talk about context here as well, which is terrific. Um, but, but before we jump in there, in terms of just somebody assessing or measuring, you know, is this fasting level ideal? Would it be, you know, before a meal, after a meal? What are some options right. and what's best practice? Right. So uh, first of all, to reinforce what you just mentioned, um, I so the last eight elite athletes uh, we I have come across, and these would range from one Olympian to world uh, performers uh, in a way. The as an estimate six out of eight had elevated blood glucose and the vast majority of the readings, even in tapering periods, were in the pre-diabetic zone. In a way, in a very on, on a very selfish note, <laughs> I felt a little bit better <laughs> because that meant that obviously I, you know, said, okay, I'm not just a freak that is ending into type, type 2 diabetes because I experienced the same. So, uh, but on the other hand, obviously made me uh, a little concerned because obviously it's a subset of population where in a way would be one of the last subsets where someone would expect a kind of type 2 diabetic trait. And I'm not saying that these people are type 2 diabetic. Yeah, That's not what I'm saying. I'm not even qualified to make that claim. But I'm saying that seeing elevated fasting glucose, it's a problem. Um so, or definitely something that would warn attention. Now, in answer to your question, um, I tend to consider the fasting glucose uh, probably one of the more relevant markers. Um, there are all sorts of ways that, I mean, I, I have used uh, continuous glucose monitoring devices. I actually have used two different brands continuous glucose monitoring devices at the same time. So I'm, I'm, I always try to find out things and how they work and my best, but also trying to check if the equipment I'm using is in a way able to reproduce the data or not based. So trying to understand the limitations of, of, of what I'm doing. So as far as taking snapshot type of reading, um, with a normal glucose monitor with a with a little skin uh, prick test, I tend to measure the fasting glucose first, uh, fasted obviously from the night before, and possibly trying to replicate the same um, environmental um, setup that you know someone would measure the glucose in so for example if someone wakes up and then half an hour measure half an hour later will measure the glucose then try to replicate that all the time so not that you know one day is after one hour one day is after 15 minutes because there could be variations in that for sure so they, keeping that continuity is key and is, is there a certain number of days in the morning that you would aim for in a week if someone was a practitioner or someone was listening at home and wanted to kind of assess this for a week is there sort of three days five days seven days what's the uh, what do you find yeah great question actually uh, in order to increase compliance um i have seen that a minimum of three days seems to be more than sufficient so 
when I started to, in a way, randomly select days over a period of two months, the averages worked out over, you know, measuring three days are very consistent with the averages of extrapolating data for continuous um, snapshot reading every day. So I'd say a minimum of three days um, and then obviously a maximum of, you know, seven days a week. Uh, that seems to be, you know, pretty <clears throat> pretty good, similar to heart variability, for example. So that, that, that gives a, you know, a baseline. So normally say Monday, Wednesday and Friday, forget about it, the weekend, if they're working Monday to Friday, um, and that can provide a little bit uh, in, in most individuals an increase in compliance. Interestingly, some other individuals, they would comply more if he's an everyday thing because they integrated in their routine. So any deviation <laughs> from their daily routine is something that they're likely not to do. So, but it depends by the individuals. And is there a rough number of sort of weeks or, you know, in terms of compliance, four weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks that people will tend to, you know, in sort of your general population be able to kind of maintain yeah. that? That, uh, that often, I'll, go, I'll give you the rule of thumb answer and then For just sure. clarify that. So I try to get a minimum of two weeks, especially fees that are only measuring three days a week, but that is very relative to the subset of population that the person belongs to. So, for example, if he's an athlete and he's going through periodization of training or periodization of application of a certain nutritional regimen, then I would probably take in consideration that. So if he's a certain value of glucose in a tapering phase versus in a loading phase, we need to take that into account in potential differences. So if someone has a fasting elevated glucose level two days after he's entering a tapering phase, there is something majorly wrong. In uh, Something isn't right in that individual. Whereas if someone has exactly the same fasting glucose, they are slightly elevated in second or third day following a, a loading phase, that may be seen as a potential effect, which perhaps would worry me a little bit less. I'm, I, I'm hoping this makes a bit of sense. For sure, yeah. I mean, in terms of obviously, you know, training stress being able to impact uh, blood glucose control. Obviously, food does. Are there other things that your other causes of this normal um, fasting blood glucose that that come up on your radar? Oh gosh, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, how long have we got? <laughs> yeah, what, what doesn't, right? Could you, get, could you give folks some of your top uh, top ones? Yeah, so um, sleep, I'm starting to find, um, actually, let me try back a sec. So you mentioned diet. Now, given a certain quality in the diet, as long as they are performing some physical activity, the blood glucose doesn't seem to change that much. And this is, I'm, I'm probably going to have it, 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 thousands of emails saying that that isn't true, but this is what we have measured and observed on, on, you know, repetitively. So what I'm trying to say is if someone is reasonably healthy uh, or with a good degree of health, Diet, as long as the diet is decent, 
um, doesn't seem to have such a pivotal role in fasting glucose as other things, for example, like life load, um, heavy stress response, or a, a, a chronic load of a certain training uh, with at you know medium to high intensity. So, however, in disease people, then diet still does have a substantial role in that. Then, obviously, life load, stress response, uh, that seems to also have a substantial effect. And sleep is the one also that I have found to have a, a very strong effect on fasting glucose. Not so much, for example, on the odd night um, that someone isn't sleeping right, but from this third night of disrupted sleep consecutively, then we, I start to see substantial changes within the fasting glucose level the following morning. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, last year I was doing some travel, London, Seattle, Seattle, LA, back to Toronto, and I had to do a blood test that had been already um, scheduled. And of course, I had combined the jet lag with uh, sleep deprivation, and I was amazed at what the, you know, my blood glucose was in the pre-diabetic range. So it's amazing how those as you mentioned, life stress load or travel stress load or lack of sleep load are definitely major, oh, yeah. major influencers. And, and you mentioned also another one, uh, which is jet lag. So our body would follow certain circadian patterns. And if you have jet lag, you may be naturally higher or lower given to the reading that you just took compared to your normal environment because of a natural flow on top of obviously the stress response so our our so obviously body follows you know some circadian rhythms and hormones and neurotransmitters and so functions seem obviously change throughout the day and night and there are subtle fluctuations of certain variables including proxies like we're using blood glucose or heart availability. So you have the load of the stress of the travel, but on top of that, to skew the data, potentially there could be natural daily variations in in whichever, uh, you know, depending upon the time that you measured. Um, so, yeah, just a little thing else to consider. <laughs> Absolutely. And definitely for folks who travel a lot for work and whatnot, I mean, it's... Uh, it's definitely a, a, a significant stressor. And if we now kind of jump into, Alessandro, the, um, the recent study um, that you were part of in terms of, uh, you know, s cycling, hit training. Um, and yeah, maybe if you can walk through, folks through that and then give us some of those practical um, applications would be great. Sure, it'd be, be my pleasure. Um, now, I was, um, I was called to collaborate um, purely because of my experience at, at the time uh, with ketogenic application in, in sport performance. And what, what we wanted to find out was the application of a ketogenic diet, and we will define that in a minute, um, in relation to HIT. Most of the studies that were done at the time were done on more endurance type of event, so on a high volume type of event rather than high intensity. Um, 
And the study came to some surprise to me, um, I have to say, because I generally thought that there was a good chance that the individual would actually start to have a decline within the performance, and they didn't. Um, so the study was set to, to find a low-carbohydrate diet effect on high-intensity uh, exercise. It was, a, in my view, there was a good, decent setup. Um, and what was really interesting is that with, in, in the study, uh, we looked at four-week period. I'm sure that you are aware that, you know, if, if you follow any of the low-carbohydrate group, um, <laughs> most of the times the, the comment that follow a negative study is, you know, or oh, that wasn't long enough to adapt. And that seems to, to be a kind of natural response to any negative study of ketogenic diet or low-carbohydrate diet. Now, yes, it is a potential for some studies not being long enough, especially the last three days. <laughs> um, so we decided to go for four weeks. Uh, Lucas Cyprian actually decided to go for four weeks, which was actually brilliant. And there was a slight increase in, 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 in RPE, which is basically the, the rate of perceived effort after the first week in the keto group, meaning they felt more fatigued, but then suddenly started to have uh, what they define a kind of burst of energy. Uh, it started to feel more energetic to a point that then the RPE at the end were actually similar to the control group. So the, the diet was uh, reasonably healthy. So I'm sure that you're aware that any diet can have a healthy version and an unhealthy version. And that was not any of the extremes. So the, the, the quality of the food was, was, was good. Uh, it wasn't just the usual typical overload of saturated fat. Fat was reasonably good quality. Um, and it was all track recorded. Also, they received some counsel in relation to how to approach the diet. Um, and well, the other thing that was interesting is they had a slight introductory period um, into, into the start of the study for the four weeks, and they were measured at the start, midpoint, and then the end. And I find that great from a scientific perspective because when things start to go wrong on a ketogenic diet is generally, in, in, in this subset population, let me specify that, um, it is what people refer as keto flow kind of thing. And normally it's within the week, 10 days. So I think it was really interesting that uh, Lucas wanted to also measure um, the midpoint to then see what the changes would actually be afterwards. So this is a nutshell, the, 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 the setup of the study. And we found some, some really interesting results because looking at all the data, which I don't want to bore, bore you with, <laughs> um, we didn't find any substantial decrease in performance on a, on a gradient type of effort in um, trained individuals. I tried to specify this as at my best ability because um, people can take this completely out of context. Um, 
which I'm very happy to go into if you wish, but um, for sure, maybe, that, that, maybe we'll jump into there. Uh, maybe Alex, in just one sec, I'll just circle back for folks and say, you know, we'll link to this paper as well on the site so they can have a read through. And of course, sure. um, the cyclists were participating in the hit session, so high intensity interval training, so five sets of three minutes, correct, with about a correct a two to one work to rest ratio. Um, yeah, and of course, in the study, seconds, seconds a, yeah. a lot of obviously in um, detriments, perceived detriments of this type of ketogenic approach for endurance training is this fact that when we get into these high intensity bouts we lose that sort of top gear uh, and so as you, as you mentioned in this study then we're, we're seeing that the low carb or very low carb group was able to uh, maintain their high intensity output is that correct that is correct now so if i may if i yeah if i may word it slightly different which you're, you're totally correct is just in my head, I think is perhaps less ambiguous. Um, we did not observe a decrease in performance, um, which is exactly what you just said. So the athlete maintained that performance, or the changes that we have observed were trivial. Although there were some interesting intra-group variations. So these, these, the, the, the individuals perform. The mean was pretty much the same, yet variations between individuals were reasonably, you know, they were noticeable. So some individuals did a hell of a lot better than others. That's what I'm trying to say. Terrific. Yeah, so maybe we can go down that uh, path and give us some more there, because I know folks who are probably in the low-carb or keto side are, are, are sort of cheering, and folks who are on the performance dietitian or who are in the traditional fueling model are sort of gasping at some of the findings. So let, let's get into a lot of the nuance, because I think, as you mentioned and we chatted about before the show, people can sort of take these things definitely out of context in terms of the uh, what the research is telling us. So maybe you can give us some of those insights on the individuals, and, and we can dive into that. Sure. I mean, one thing that you know when you're trying to answer a question in a study then as soon as you finish you got 100 more um so i, I had all sorts of people saying why did you not mention this why did you not do that so the, the the purpose of the study is like one of the first studies lasting four weeks on hit and we wanted to see as a gross measure as a bird eye view if ketogenic diets will bring a decrease in performance that that what we set up to do obviously there are costs involved so you know people suggested to measure some really really interesting markers yet uh, we're measuring interleukin-6 we're measuring you know free oxidative radical uh, changes we have you know it, it was already reasonably <laughs> quite expensive study to 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 set up so um some of the problems i see is that are, are mainly in relation to the application. So, especially in social media, where there are lots of, uh, let's say, uh, guru and experts, um, unfortunately, a study like this, I have seen already being misinterpreted because we did not find, one, an increase in performance. Um, so the fact that the performance has not dropped does not mean that has increased. What we found is that in a period of four weeks, post one week of, let's call it a switch on the body to burn a higher proportion of fat versus um, glucose, we 
over a period of these four weeks, we noticed that performance has not declined. And obviously, a couple of comments following that. One, it does not mean that if people stay on this diet, performance will not decline still. In fact, in some of the HIT type of um, real sports uh, athletes that I uh, follow, after the seventh, eighth week of a strict low-carbohydrate ketogenic style approach, we started to see some detriment to the performance, especially, as you mentioned, in, in what you mentioned, the high gear. So people can still have a base of performance, which it can be unchanged or sometimes slightly better. But when is the time to go into the high intensity side of what people refer as anaerobic, then uh, this is when things start to, you know, this is when things start to go wrong. Um, so it is great to see a non-luck of performance following the four weeks, but that does not mean that people, one, should stay on this diet, two, that after six, seven, eight, ten weeks, the person will still perform as good as they would be on a traditional diet. So this, this is something that I, I really wanted to, to, to specify because I just saw some comment left and right and people getting into arguments and, and I think is the, 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 the context is, 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 is being taken out completely. Yeah, terrific to, to highlight that, absolutely. Um, and if we dive into even some of those individual differences, can you give us some examples of, of how f some folks might have um, enhanced or, or felt better versus others who struggled? Yeah, in, in virtually um, in, in, in every in virtually every aspect we we we, we measured there the were there the were substantial differences. So, for example, if we take weight, um, body weight, and mass, obviously in the keto group. Well, obviously I'm saying obviously, but because I've been researching that for a while, so there was a drop in uh, total weight, and we we measured more of a fat mass drop um, into the keto group versus the control group. Although um, what was interesting to notice is that, for example, most people lost weight, but we can't quite say that it was down to the diet in itself because naturally people went slightly, so the diet were not controlled for isocaloric uh, confounded. So people were eating what they wanted to eat. Um, we did not set a specific uh, target. So there was a slight reduction in the total food energetic value. However, in in ketogenic application, this is a whole new topic. Um, if you go to my website, um, I have a short video where I explain that the there are variations within individuals if we measure calories as the main uh, proxy for energetic attribution to a body, um, that on a ketogenic diet, it may have up to uh, 15 to 17% error within the calculation, overestimating it. 
So there are three questions just based on the, you know, on the diet uh, way. All the other findings were pretty, pretty similar, similar. So there was a, yeah, small to trivial changes as mentioned in body weight, definitely a small reduction in body fat in relation to the control group, weight, obviously total weight drop. Um, as far as the yeah, body fat, mm, only one person slightly uh, increased the body fat, but it was so marginal that, you know, could have been just, you know, error within, um, within the actual uh, measurements. One thing interesting that uh, we found, we found uh, differences in heart rate, for example, um, and the operation heart rate for the, what people refer as the zones. Um, but also there was a slight difference in the willingness to exercise of the keto group that was slightly reduced. So what it seemed is that especially following week two, week one and two, um, maybe due to the slightly drop in energy post week one, uh, so when people were switching to burn a higher percentage of fat given the carbohydrate restriction, their willingness to exercise was uh, perhaps uh, affected. Um, in fact, if we look at the graph on the fatigue severity scale weekly, that is, the, you can actually see the keto group that shot up in week one, dropped eventually in week two, and then uh, it was nice and steady. Fatigue score, that changes, changed also substantially. The mean average, the fatigue score increased in the, in the control group and decreased in the actual uh, self-reported um, fatigue uh, reporting. So all the rest is some individual variation. We did not control for genetic predisposition of, you know, glucose versus fat there are a few genes that perhaps i would i would consider um variations in the vo2 max were very consistent uh, and slightly flattened in the keto group versus the control so that means that the control group had uh, substantial changes in the um variation of vo2 max um Whereas the keto group was slightly more uh, more contained, all of them but one reported increase in the VO2 max. That is, seems to be consistent with a type of um, HIT type of um, um, uh, results from 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 research. Um, yet in the keto group, seemed to you know, seems to be a little bit more uh, consistent uh, with that. So these these are, in my view, some of the more um, interesting uh, findings uh, that we have. Obviously, the keto group had a substantial reduction of the RER. So basically, they were showing to use a lot more uh, fats for uh, energy. Uh, this is obviously you know, pretty justifiable because they they didn't have uh, a, a diet that was high in carbohydrate. Absolutely. So, yeah, and, and obviously that the lactate obviously was a lot higher 
the fat oxidation rate was pretty consistent, uh, you know, amongst the keto group, uh, which was great. You can see, obviously, they were using uh, fat a lot more considerably um, than any of the others, and these were the variation were slightly, uh, slightly lower. And Alex, which, I know obviously a lot yeah. of coaches and athletes, um, endurance. We're talking here, of course, are concerned with a keto approach in terms of adding this hit training, hit being so important again um, during a uh, training phase in order to increase fitness. So we see some uh, some nice evidence here that it, we can be able to buffer any reductions with a sort of low-fat uh, keto approach. However, I'm, I'm sure some people would be asking around, you know, the level of the athletes. Obviously, these were sort of moderately fit athletes. Um, I know difficult to recruit elite athletes, but what might there be some differences there um, for folks who are trying to interpret that? Well, um, so the more trained is the person, this is, this is a generalized rule of thumb. I'm sure that you're going to have someone say, actually, that isn't true. However, <laughs> given, given our observation over, over the years, the more trained is the athlete, despite the diet, the higher is the percentage and proportions of fat the, the person is using. So if you take uh, my assumption is that these were trained individuals, and if you and if you were to 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 take athletes, uh, elite athletes, these people may already burn a slightly higher proportion of fats, despite they might be on a normal level of carbohydrate, proteins, and fats within the diet. Actually, carbohydrates and fats. Let's let's leave out the protein for a minute. So um, I I have observed um, that the the higher is the level of fitness of the athlete or person, let's call it, um, the easier is the transition onto a low-carb, high-fat, ketogenic diet type of approach, except in very few individuals which it literally did not work. So this is when we start to suspect perhaps certain uh, genetic predisposition, mutation, maybe in the uh, cat one and cat two, or sorry, CPT one, CPT two, or cat. So these are all things that obviously we need to take in consideration. But the general rule of thumb that we have observed is that the more trained is the athlete, the higher um, is the probability that he will switch to a higher proportions of fat burned um, more easily in a shorter length of time. For sure, that's uh, that's terrific and. You know, for myself, when I see some of these results, I always come back to, you know, a lot of the clients that I'll see in clinical practice, and I know uh, other nutritionists, trainers, etc. You know, those clients who are maybe 40s, 50s, 60s, who are, um, you know, sort of serious about their endurance training, but still recreational, and oftentimes still have sort of 20 or 15 pounds to lose, uh, and are yeah. typically fueling with a strategy that's uh, a traditional strategy that someone who's elite. You know, they're, they're feeling like they're crisp room, but they're doing a weekend race uh, for fun. And we see that these blood sugar markers or inflammatory markers or triglycerides are, are in places that are uh, trending towards, um, you know, dysfunction. So for me, this is where this would be a great application, whether, you know, full stop or kind of drip fed in. Um, for yourself in terms of, you know, for folks listening in, what are some of the take homes and for yourself in terms of um, what, what this is telling us? Sure. Um, you, you, you described it really, really great because, in fact, um, in our 
in my recent research um, and with the help of my colleague, uh, Waco Jaris, we are, we are starting to evaluate glucose as a separate market for um, chronic level of inflammatory response. So in a way, they accumulated uh, inflammation. Um, whereas HIV is more of a uh, acute uh, marker. So we can see trends of a period of time, and obviously this is what we are researching at present. Um, this was a, a, a over generalized statement of, I, I just made, so it has to be taken in the right context. However, when, as far as the application answering to your question, I think that for individuals that, especially if they are not professional, meaning on top of the training, they still have to do the normal job. So obviously it's an added load uh, on top of the training. Um, then we are starting to see derangement within the inflammatory response. And one of the first proxies to uh, start to become elevated is in fact the glucose, fasting glucose, um, including also some postprandial response, but that's, that's, that's a little bit more uh, difficult to interpret. So that is exactly the subset population that I would perhaps consider going either low carb, high fat, or lower carb, not necessarily, a, you know, straight guidance as, as as keto, in order to maximize the the weight. I think that um, the low carbohydrate in this sense has an advantage. We are not fully clear because there are different reasons why someone would lose body fat. One is using more fat, yes, true. However, normally there are safety mechanisms that the body would have in order to compensate for uh, these changes. Um, could it be because the energetic intake automatically in the vast majority of individuals tends to drop a bit? So, because of the type of diet is more satiating diet and they naturally eat less, in which case the, the benefit may not be strictly and only confined to the keto, but may also be um, as a confounder looking at perhaps a slight reduction in the total energetic intake. So, however, the application would be of this specific group. One thing I am not saying that these people should stay on this diet ongoingly. Um, I think they they need to put this into once again the right context. So, if the load, if the life load and exercise load is very high, and there is, for example, an acute inflammatory response, this may may not be the best approach, depending upon how they're going to move it and take it forward. So, periodizing it, I think, is a fantastic tool. Uh, but how to periodize it, this is, is, is slightly different For sure, in, yeah. that, in that context, yeah, in that context. Yeah, I think it's great to, to point out. I mean, obviously, race day nutrition is going to be very different oftentimes from training nutrition. And I think folks who are even dipping their toe into this can probably start to experiment around more aerobic sessions with kind of tweaking that carbohydrate intake. Because I think a lot of people are still in an older mentality of sort of higher carbohydrate all the time. If I'm an endurance athlete, and of course, even at the elite level, we see you know, 
major fluctuations with the carb availability depending on the session. So that's that's a great uh, point there, Alex. And you know, you mentioned inflammation, and I always find it fascinating that you know athletes who are training hard, obviously, we see this inflammatory response, which you talk about driving uh, the blood glucose. And in the general population who aren't well, we see just that you know metabolic dysfunction and poor health driving this inflammatory from a different avenue, which is which is affecting the blood glucose. So could you talk a little bit more about that inflammatory uh, blood glucose connection, and maybe uh, what some of your uh, research is at the moment? Sure, sure. Um, I, as mentioned earlier, I, I, I tried to combine these two areas of interest I have in relation to inflammatory response. Say, for example, I'm predisposed to have a slightly higher inflammatory reactions compared to other people. This doesn't necessarily mean good or bad. It depends, obviously, what, what is my body going to do with that slightly higher response. And, um, especially with athletic performance, um, I found very useful to use a formula that I've put together, which we are putting into a PhD study, which is using heart rate variability divided by the square of the glucose. And the reason I wanted to, to, to put together such a formula is because I wanted a, a, an acute marker divided by a chronic marker. I'm not sure if this makes any sense at all. No, but for sure. I, I, I wanted to create something that will give me an idea of how the body is dealing with acute versus chronic load, chronic inflammatory response. And what we found is that blood glucose in reasonably healthy individuals seems to be very sensitive to that degree of inflammatory response. So, for example, in the last three days, I have increased the load of my rehab um, and I had, uh, as you have experienced yourself in the UK, was a really good uh, sunny spell over the bank holiday period. And I decided to re-roof my main shed and <laughs> build the porch. And I was under the sunshine all day and etc. And this morning, boom, I'm in a full parasympathetic rebound with higher fasting circulating glucose. I mean, for me... Uh, 4.9, which is your 88, is very high now. So um, all the 0 0.7, 0 0.8 of a millimolar above my mean uh, or my ideal, my ideal uh, figure. So you can see that despite acutely I may have had some differences within the HIV four or five days because of the, my rehab and extra load, now the glucose has had a steady incline, a steady climb up in, in the last four days because of accumulated uh, inflammatory response. So that's the reason why I tend to consider fasting glucose in reasonably healthy individuals or non-disease individuals, I should say, more of a proxy for chronic degree of, in, of, of low-grade inflammatory response rather than just, oh, yesterday I had an extra banana, therefore today fasting glucose is elevated. I, I've heard For those sure. sorts. Um, so that's the reason why I consider fasting glucose uh, a, a, an important proxy in relation to this context. That's a great, uh, great insight there in terms of, yeah, just making these inappropriate sort of short-term 
associations between I ate X, Y, or Z yesterday, therefore I have a higher blood glucose today, fasting glucose. Um, could you talk <laughs> about some other pitfalls potentially for folks who decide that they want to kind of go go down this route and do some tracking in the morning? Uh, you mentioned keeping the environment the same, obviously the same time. Are there other things to, for people to consider? Yes, for sure. Um, one of the other things I've noticed um, over a period of last few years is the last time of eating the previous day impacts on the fasting glucose the following day. But that seems to impact not so much because the meal hasn't been dealt with. So basically, the later they would eat a certain day, the higher is the probability that the following day the glucose is elevated. So I, I took uh, a group of 37 individuals. There were 52, but then I had to clean up the data. And what I mean by clean up the data is because some people decided to guess some of the days. <laughs> <laughs> and they fortunately, they, they disclosed that. So I, I didn't cherry pick the data. I was maybe overly diligent. Um, and if a person would have made any form of guesswork, I had eliminated that person completely from this specific part of the my research project. Gotcha, <laughs> so, gotcha. Criteria, well, right? Well, once again, uh, I'm not trying to prove anything or sell anything. So I, I, I just want to observe what's happening. Uh, and that, that gives me, I think, a, a decent you know, position on, 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 a, on, a, on a research front. So um, what was interesting is that anyone that would eat within two and a half hours to three hours, because obviously I had to transform the time in a categorical variable, not in an ongoing variable, just to give it some sense and treat it as such uh, for statistical analysis. Um, if people were eating reasonably close to the time of retiring, so going to bed, the following day, they, they, they had either a dawn phenomena, which is when the glucose is elevated as soon as someone would wake up, um, or the whole day, uh, or at least for the morning, the body had to play catch up with a fasting glucose. And for someone, <clears throat> the average was of retiring was around 11 o'clock, um, mainly, you know, the, this was actually quite consistent among all individuals. And fortunately, there was one individual that was, his mean was around 12, and another one that was a lot earlier, so they cancelled each other out, <laughs> and that was actually quite handy. Nice, uh, nice. And <laughs> so the, 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 the limit point would have been 1,800 hours versus 2,300 hours. So we're actually looking at that kind of four or five hours before retiring from the last meal. The biggest mistake I found in the application of uh, certain uh, techniques like time-restricted feeding is that people that would um, have the time-restricted feeding window later on in the day would have a higher fasting glucose compared to the individuals that would have roughly the same caloric intake but earlier in the day. So that would be the typical side is people skip breakfast but overcompensate for dinner. So I've seen some of the uh, data both from my fitness pal or sensor or 
you know, any nutritional um, data gathering app um, where the people that were uh, skipping breakfast, they seem to have still a normal lunch, but they would overcompensate with dinner. And I'm not sure that, I mean, I can make all sorts of assumption, but it's nothing more than assumption. Um, and what is interesting is that also the, 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 the food preferences were also interesting. So the, the must, uh, my assumption is that there could be something alongside circadian biology or um, perhaps uh, ha habits given by the fat. So because I haven't had that, so there could be kind of reward uh, feeling, so a psych-emotional connotation. So there could be many, many reasons, but I don't want to just put out just pure conjectures on, on, on that side. No worries. I mean, that's a nice, um, it's definitely a trend that I notice as well. So something for folks to just be mindful of. If you do decide to do a certain approach, like an intermittent fasting, then this, yeah, this idea that all of a sudden the, the caloric intake is massive in the, in the evening, oh, we ramp right up, then obviously <laughs> yeah. miss, missing out on a lot of the benefit there. Alex, fantastic. You know, you know when, uh, oh, sorry to interrupt, you know when people say this is a, 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 a all inclusive buffet and they try to stuff as much as they can, even if they're not hungry anymore, because is a certain price and they can eat as much as they want. It, 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 some of the individuals I spoke to reported this openly. So because my time restricted feeding window is, is, is now um, I can eat is in the eating time. And because I couldn't have a proper lunch, then I'm going to have a huge dinner. But if you merge the huge dinner plus too close to sleep, this is when I saw a dawn phenomena within diabetic ranges. Yeah, it's, that's really interesting, really interesting stuff. And um, Alex, I want to respect your time here. So before we wrap up, um, yep. last couple of questions for you. What's what's the biggest take-home message then that you give folks in terms of um, whether it's assessing the fasting glucose or the study that we talked about around uh, you know, ketogenic diets and, and endurance cyclists? The the main thing, observe, observe the context in which you actually see variation. So ideally, especially in athletes, um, Anything knocking at the door of five millimolar or 90 milligrams per deciliter, um, I would want a good justification for it. So, for example, as mentioned earlier, if someone is having these readings at that level in a tapering phase towards the end, the person still may carry some form of inflammatory response or the diet or the sleep or something isn't quite right. Um, and would that impair performance? I don't know. Um, I can make once again assumption, but there is very little that could, I mean, one in a simple way is no, because we see Olympic athletes that do that as we have data for, but not a lot of data and actually quite limited data, but, um, we do not know how the athlete would perform if the person would have had an optimal uh, fasting glucose. So we can say that it, the other home take with that is make sure that you identify and notice what has led to that. So basically trying to make connections without becoming apophenic, obviously, without trying to find um, a reason and see a pattern where there isn't. 
Um, but try to see and collect perhaps some data and start to notice, right, okay, so every time my bedtime is delayed of an hour and a half, then that happens. Or every time I train in a certain way for three or four days in a row, that happens because it's highly individual. And that is what I'm finding more and more. So within the individual variations, we have some general guidelines. So sleep optimally, you, I'm sure that you, you are very familiar with this and you don't need me to tell you that. But, um, but it, know, is, just, it is amazing, Alex, how some of the, you know, using technology, using things like this, all of a sudden people who know they should sleep uh, or know they shouldn't eat late, this sort of informs them a little bit more about some of the uh, repercussions. And then all of a sudden I noticed all, you know, clients will take on board some of this advice that they've been sort of uh, paying lip service to. <laughs> You're so right. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book right now and in a way is about, is the antithesis of a fad, of a fad trendy book. So is mainly looking at addressing the basics and contextualizing uh, different techniques and approaches and diets and, 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 and information. And it is so, it still amazes me how I have requests from athletes wanting to go down a, a very specific expensive test and design supplementation for their genetic um, set up and yet they don't sleep properly. They, you know, the life load, they're trying to work on top of the training despite our elite athlete. And you think, well, hang on a minute, we're, we're missing the wood for the tree here. So, and sleep is probably, in my view, despite I'm a nutritionist, is probably one of the most, uh, most influential thing that we're missing. Um, and even if we don't consider we're not sleeping that much less than what previous generation. We're only, it's only about 30 something minutes, I seem to recall. Uh, so it's not so much sleep deprivation, but my assumption is that it's sleep deprivation versus the substantially higher load of our life load, of our lifestyle. So it's not that we're not recovering as good, but maybe a bit of that for sure, but we are also have increased substantially our load in our lives and same thing then affects our nutrition and same thing affects our circadian biology and physical activity. So these are the things that I would definitely look as a take-home point. So look at what are these variations and what tends to generate. For me, sleep is one of the most important thing despite the diet. Yeah, it's, when it's, someone else is different. Very well said, and especially people trying to focus on those areas of such small margins of gains, rather than missing these sort of big buckets like sleep and 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 per training periodization that can really, obviously, nutrition that can really move things for them. So very well said there. And Alex, last question for you on the personal side of things. That's you know, right. how do you start your day? Obviously, you're measuring fasting glucose. After that, <laughs> how, how the rest? How, how does the rest of the morning look like for you? So um, I now. Uh, since I focused on my sleep, I naturally wake up at dawn. Um, so I, I follow that variations in winter and summer, which is actually, I love it uh, in a nutshell. Then I do a little, what shall I call it, breathing exercise. Um, and that lasts for 20, 25, 30 minutes. Then I go downstairs and see my boys, which that is the dogs. Um, my 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 son is definitely a later chronotype. 
Um, so I won't see him until I'm back. Um, and then I take the boys in the woods, uh, literally opposite my house, and um, do some practice uh, of my forms. Um, by that time, I do forms very, very slowly with no power, no speed, uh, just as a setting me up for the day um, kind of thing. Then come back, organize my day, then have breakfast, uh, and then start my day. This, this is in a nutshell uh, what I tend to do. Terrific, Alex. Well, listen, fantastic stuff here. Where can people keep up with all your great work and fantastic research? <laughs> your way to kind. Um, my which is my full name, Equilibria. We are redesigning it right now. Um, and is my full name, Alessandro Ferretti. Uh, .co uk and uh, if you go in the video section it's all there for you there is there is nothing to buy I'm, I'm organizing a few courses but that is I'm, I'm still way out so it's not a plug <laughs> um, so it is all in there for people to find and uh, yeah I hope you enjoy my observations Fantastic. Well, yeah, definitely enjoy your observations, especially as they relate even to that practical side, which is so terrific. And we'll include the paper discussed here in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, along with those links. Thanks for everyone else tuning in. If you have any questions for Alex or want to leave a comment on today's episode, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at drbubs. Of course, if you enjoy the show, please take a couple minutes, subscribe, and leave us a comment on iTunes. Thanks again, everyone, and see you all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.